Welcome to our first segment of this afternoon's program. It's Sunday, the 28th of November, 2021. It is now 1.03 p.m. in the studio. I'm your host, Kieran Murdoch. Uh, the three former government ministers accused of corruption in the now infamous bus scandal have been acquitted on charges of corruption, conversion, and embezzlement. After a two-week trial in the High Court before Justice Colin Williams, and after the prosecution's conclusion of its case against the accused, the defense argued that there was no case to answer, meaning that the evidence to back the charges was insufficient and that the charges ought to be dismissed. The court agreed and found that there was no case to answer, and the three former ministers, Harold Lovell, Wilmoth Daniel, and Dr. Jackie Quinn, were formally declared not guilty of the charges against them. At the end of the trial, one of the acquitted, Dr. Jackie Quinn, the former MP for St. George and the former Education Minister, again declared that the investigation was a politically motivated vendetta. And if this government intends to challenge this again and to appeal and to bring it back, the people of Antigua and Barbuda will see it for what it is, a political witch hunt, victimization of the highest order. And I can tell you, Seven years my life has been on hold. For seven years my life has been on hold. My reputation has been dragged through the mud by this government. By this government. The voice of Dr. Jackie Quinn, former St. George MP and former Education Minister. Uh, now, the bus scandal has been ongoing since May of 2016, when the three former ministers were charged originally. Uh, ten months later, in March of 2017, the matter came before Magistrate Conlet Clark, who dismissed the case, citing insufficient evidence. Uh, the Director of Public Prosecutions, Anthony Armstrong, then appealed the magistrate's decision, arguing that there was an improper application of procedure. The DPP won. And in October of 2019, the case was then refiled against the three former ministers. Uh, it came before a different magistrate, Chief Magistrate Joanne Walsh, in June of 2020. Uh, she declared that there was enough evidence against the three accused upon first examination to commit the matter to the High Court. When it was committed, the three former ministers pled not guilty. And as you know, the trial only happened this month, November 2021. It was a judge-only trial. At the center of the case against the accused were three Daewoo buses donated by the government of South Korea during the UPP administration, 2004 to 2014, uh, each bus worth some $218,000. Uh, at the trial, a number of things came out. Uh, it was demonstrated that one bus each was registered and insured in the names of the three accused who were sitting ministers at the time, but that at least two, or at least in two cases, the accused did not register the buses themselves. Uh, the three initially told police investigators that the buses were used to transport community groups and individuals within their respective constituencies. Additionally, both Harold Lovell and Dr. Jackie Quinn told the police that they had never had the buses on their property, had never driven the buses themselves, and that they had not personally benefited from their use. Uh, Dr. Quinn's lawyers, for example, emphasized that there was no evidence to suggest the buses had been used Tegan Barbuda's former UN ambassador, Dr. John Ash. Uh, Daniel claimed in the trial that Ash indicated uh, that Daniel owned the bus. Uh, in a statement to police, Daniel said that he had, that had he at any time, rather, thought that the vehicle did not belong to him, he would not have spent thousands of dollars maintaining and ultimately refurbishing it years later. Uh, a, another witness, Cordley George, a member of the UPP and a former employee with the Ministry of Tourism, also testified to licensing and insuring a Daewoo bus on behalf of Lovell, who at the time served as the Minister of Tourism. 
Uh, George said, quote, that anybody or any organization who needed help with their travels, whatever that may be, uh, we would accommodate them in whatever way we could, end quote. Uh, in the course of the trial, Hubert Jarvis, who was the product development officer in 2008 when the buses came in, told the court that they were brought in by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but that they were not registered in the name of the government. Uh, then the principal customs inspector, Kurt Williams, explained to the court that normally such consigned items would need to arrive accompanied by a declaration signed by a government minister and his or her permanent secretary. Uh, but having looked at the manifest, Williams said that he observed the buses were delivered at the port in 2008, but that no such declaration was present. He said declarations are normally prepared by a broker and signed by government officials, uh, and then the comptroller or deputy comptroller, uh, and then processed by customs so that delivery can take place. Uh, Williams said that he assumed that delivery was done pending declaration, but had no idea if the document was actually prepared. But had no idea if the document was actually prepared. Uh, later, the former permanent secretary in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Colin Murdoch, told the court that each year the Korean government donated different items as part of a grant aid program with the government of Antigua and Barbuda. Uh, he said he recalled school buses being shipped in 2008, but that the shipping documents were handed over to either the Ministry of Public Works or the Antigua and Barbuda Transport Board. So his ministry, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, of which former Prime Minister Baldwin Spencer was in charge, had nothing to do with the collection or distribution of the three buses in question. Uh, the former Foreign Affairs Permanent Secretary added that the procurement and communication with South Korea was done by Antigua and Barbuda's then UN Ambassador Dr. John Ash and Prime Minister Spencer. Uh, he denied knowing to whom the buses were allocated or being the one who allocated them. Uh, in the course of the trial, lawyers for the defendants presented various documents to support their position that the late Dr. John Ash had arranged for the buses to go to the three ministers. It was revealed that the investigators in the case uh, never questioned uh, Dr. Ash before he died in June of 2016. Uh, then former Prime Minister and Minister of Foreign Affairs, well, former Minister of Foreign Affairs, Ball and Spencer, uh, testified in court that the buses, quote, were not considered property of the government of Antigua and Barbuda directly, end quote, uh, he said this was, quote, clearly not the arrangement. Uh, Spencer claimed that he and the late Dr. John Ash had a side meeting with the ambassador of South Korea at an event to discuss the need for buses in communities in Antigua and Barbuda. Uh, he said that the allocation was not a cabinet decision because, quote, it was not a situation where the request for this endeavor was to be a government-to-government -government issue. Uh, Spencer said that Ash organized, negotiated, and made most of the decisions in this regard. Uh, when the prosecution finished presenting its case, the defense made an okay submission, which the court upheld, declaring the three accused not guilty. So on this segment, we ask what led to the no-case verdict. Was the investigation a political witch hunt, as one of the acquitted has said, and were there ethical wrongs committed nonetheless? Uh, joining us for this segment, we're happy to have with us attorney at law, Mr. Stafford Byers. Uh, he's joining us from New York. He's originally, of course, from Antigua and Barbuda, and no stranger to Observer Radio. Uh, good afternoon, Mr. Byers, and how are you doing? Good afternoon, Mr. Murdoch. I'm doing well, and good afternoon to the fellow panelists and to the listeners. Uh, we have as well joining us in studio Mr. Adlai Smith. Uh, he is, by the way, is it Adlai or Adlai? Both. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mr. Adlai Smith, he, he is a former prosecutor in the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions. I know he's currently the uh, Director of Law Reform and Special Legal, legal Projects. Uh, good afternoon to you. How are you doing? Good afternoon to you and your listenership. I'm wonderful. 
And uh, finally, we have joining us on Zoom as well, Mr. Akash Maharaj, Ambassador at Large for the Global Organization of Parliamentarians Against Corruption, known as GOPAC. Uh, good afternoon to you, Mr. Maharaj. How are you doing? Good afternoon. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, Mr. Baez, I wonder if we could begin with you. Um, a straight question, whether or not you, you, or what you think of the outcome, the verdict in this case. Uh, do you think that justice was served? I think the verdict was a good verdict. I think the, the Honorable Judge laid out his reasons, his rationales, and in the end came to a conclusion that a reasonable person would come to. Now, reasonable people could come to different conclusions, but I think in applying this Galbraith test that uh, he, he lays out, he, I think he, he came to the right conclusion, I, and I agree with him in, in terms of this no case or what we would call here in New York a summary judgment motion uh, to dismiss the case. Uh, Mr. Adlai-Smith, uh, your take on the verdict? My take? Well, to my mind, based on how this case has been investigated and how it was prosecuted through the courts, uh, there was no other verdict that the judge could have come to. Now, I have had the advantage of uh, not only reading some of what has been in the papers, but actually having been in the court. And based on my live viewing of some of the witness testimony, I was of the opinion that this case was like a train wreck for the prosecution. And I want to say why I say so, right? If you would just permit me. When prosecuting, one must understand that the prosecution has the burden of proof in the case. It must prove the case to the point where you are sure. With respect to investigation, we must bear in mind that the police do not investigate corruption on a daily basis. And bear in mind, too, that the Prevention of Corruption Act 2004 says that a prosecution for corruption cannot start unless the DPP consents to it. Now, bearing that in mind, I think it's useful to draw an analogy to a football game. All of us play football. Do you understand the concept of an own goal? <laughs> yes. Right. To my mind, there were three major own goals in this case by the prosecution. And uh, we must bear in mind, too, that this case was not prosecuted by the DPP of Antigua and Barbuda. It was handed over by him to the DPP of Montserrat. So he would have gotten a particular hand that was played him by the DPP of Antigua and Barbuda insofar as the indictment, witness statements, and so on and so forth. All right. So I already mentioned the concept of the own goal. What was the first own goal? Let's look at the obvious one. Having the former prime minister, who was the minister of foreign affairs, and um, the head of the cabinet testify against his former cabinet colleagues. I mean, what did you expect the former prime minister to say? Because remember, a key issue in this case is uh, whether the buses were the property of the government of Antigua and Barbuda. And he said they were never intended to be the property of the government of Antigua and Barbuda. I mean, was it not foreseeable that the former prime minister would have said that. Now, 
The thing is, one may ask the question, with the former prime minister as a witness on the back of the indictment, could the prosecutor have um, applied for an amendment to take him off and give him to the defense? Well, guess what? The problem with that, as a former prosecutor, I've tried that in cases where I've been given that kind of hand. It's difficult in that defense counsel will say it's to their advantage to have Mr. Baldwin Spencer as a pro prosecution witness rather than a defense. And here is the reason why. When you have your own witness up there, you can only ask open-ended questions. You can't challenge or impeach your witness. When you are cross-examining the witness on the other side, you can put whatever words you want in your mouth, or in the witness's mouth. And this is practically what happened here with the suggestions. So it is not surprising that Mr. Baldwin Spencer, the former prime minister, said what he said. Okay. Now, the thing is, during the course of investigation, investigators collect a number of statements and so on and so forth. And some of them favor the prosecution, some favor both prosecution and defense, some favor or are likely to favor or you can foresee to favor that will favor the defense. And I think Mr. Baldwin Spencer's statement is one of them, right? Now, with that said, what ought to have been done or what would have been a reasonable thing to do as a prosecutor was to have Mr. Baldwin Spencer's statement to be a witness for the defense and let the defense call him as a witness and let the prosecution cross-examine him with respect to the corrupt aspects. And this was not done. And hence why I say this was a major own goal. All right, let me just pause there. I want to bring in Mr. Akash Maharaj just to get your initial uh, take on what you thought of the verdict. I, I won't try to, as a Canadian, I won't try to match Mr. Smith's football analogies with an ice hockey analogy, but I will agree with him that from a legal perspective, this was the only verdict that that, the, that um, Judge Williams could have rendered based on a strict, fair and impartial application of the law as it stands in Antigua and Barbuda. He had to find that the, the prosecution had fallen woefully short of making its case. But I think that there is a that the verdict and the conduct of the case raises some much broader issues that I think we will discuss throughout throughout this panel. It's possible for things to be legal and still grossly unethical. And there are aspects of this case that if they have proven anything, it's not more than pr proving the innocence of, or the guilt of the accused. It has proven the weakness of the anti-corruption system in Antigua and Barbuda. Some of the this was the correct judgment, but it was a judgment against some very weak laws. What I mean for that is that by that is that two of the cr key critical considerations the judge had to apply to his findings is firstly that ministers of the crown in Antigua and Barbuda are not for the purposes of the of anti-corruption legislation. They are not considered to be in the employment of the public service. That is to say that things that would be illegal for a, an employee of the civil servant to do are apparently perfectly legal for a minister to do. And I think most people would agree that that is backwards. People who hold more power should be held to higher standards. And if it's illegal for an ordinary person to do something, it absolutely should be illegal for a minister of the crown to do, to do that. But that is not how the, how the law was written in Antigua and Barbuda. The second aspect is that the judge had to rely on the question of to whom were these buses given? 
and the prosecution signally failed to make the case that the buses were given to the to the state of Antigua and Barbuda, to the government of Antigua and Barbuda. It left open the possibility that the buses were given to specific individuals, that is to say ministers of the Crown, or for community purposes, um, such as ferrying people in Antigua and Barbuda about. But that again poses a much deeper question, and that is to say that that means apparently it is perfectly legal in the in the political system in, in Antigua and Barbuda for ministers of the Crown to accept personally gifts from foreign governments, foreign governments who apparently in this case were trying to carry favour with Antigua and Barbuda to win votes for, for the election to the International Criminal Court. It's possible for things to be legal and still immoral. And I think that if that's the case in Antigua and Barbuda, the lesson that people should take from this episode is firstly, the people who were accused deserve to be exonerated because they did not break any laws as they stood. But secondly, the laws as they stand are woefully inadequate to deliver justice and not just legality. Uh, Mr. Stafford Byers, if I could bring you back in to get your, your reaction to what's been said so far, pretty much um, that the, the prosecution's case was uh, inadequate, was, was really not the best case. Well, I, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly because when, when you look at uh, the statute, the corruption, anti-corruption statute, especially uh, uh, about the whole idea whether government ministers are considered um, in the public service. Uh, I found that quite jarring, but based on the way it is const was construed, uh, the, the court interpreted it correctly. But there again, I agree with the, the submission of Mr. Maharaj that something ought to be done to strengthen these laws because if anyone is in the public service it should be a minister of government but as the judge applied the laws i think the judge did the correct thing i think there were too many holes in the prosecution's case and whereby even at the last moment they were trying to uh, uh, amend the language of the charges and 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 had to have re-indictment and the the uh the, the accused having to plead again in court just when trial was about to begin. I think that boded ill for the prosecution. So I agree with what the um, other two panelists are saying. And I also agree with Mr. Maharaj that we need to seriously consider tightening the laws in Antigua and Barbuda as they, as they apply, especially as they apply to public officials. Uh, and Mr. Adlai Smith, uh, I, I believe you might have had another football to discuss with us. Well, uh, yeah, another football, but I want to say in response to what my colleagues have indicated, uh, to my mind, the embezzlement charge in the public service, that was not applicable in the beginning. That's actually it's interesting because one of the questions I wanted to ask was whether or not uh, any of you thought that perhaps the wrong charges. Right, that, 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 that is a wrong charge. The proper charge would have been under the Prevention of Corruption Act, which is the improper use of of government property or property belonging to a public body, which is the government. That is it. And you see, the thing is, that was the charge that the Montserrat DPP, given the indictment that was given to him, he saw it right away and he amended what was the corruption charge, which was, um, I think, performing one's functions for the benefit of another, which to me, again, I mean, that is a real, real stretch, right? But 
the proper charge was what the DPP for Montserrat put on there. But the problem is that, again, you have to prove that it is the property of the government, something that runs across all three counts. And it's going to be hard because you put Baldwin Spencer, Honorable former Prime Minister, as a witness. I mean, I would be hard-pressed to see how you can appeal given that, right? Um, also, too, if I can mention about the corruption um, aspect um, of it, the, the new charge, what the problem that the prosecution faced, notwithstanding it being the proper charge, is to show the improper use. Now, you see, Oliver Baldwin Spencer, former minister, said that they were intended for community use. He is a prosecution witness. And the Crown failed to show that they applied them for personal reasons. All of the evidence submitted in the courtroom, and this is not the court of a public opinion, because when you make an allegation of a criminal offense against individual, it's the evidence in court that counts. And what came out there was community use from um, Mr. Cardley George, who was an associate of Mr. Lovell, and from even the investigator in this case, and um, uh, 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 a young lady, her name escapes me, from the transport board, all community use. Um, Mr. Maharaj, um, a lot of this uh, uh, case, or I should say the, the major aspects of it, um, sort of hinged on uh, the statements of Mr. Spencer, but also uh, the, the supposed actions of, of, of Dr. John Ash, who uh, is, is deceased. Um, I'm, I'm just curious as to what you make of the Ash connection. It's an interesting one, as they say, dead men tell no tales. And so both the prosecution and the defense can put whatever words they want into his mouth. It is clearly a misfortune for everyone, a misfortune for justice and Antigone Barbuda, that the police, for whatever reason, did not interview Mr. Ash before, before he died. That was a loss to the court system because it, it meant that the judicial process was deprived of information that it could have used directly from the source to... Uh, ensure that it was making an informed decision. Having said that, if, I, if, if we take it for granted that the words that have been attributed to Mr. Ash and the motives that have been attributed to Mr. Ash have been fairly and accurately conveyed to the court and to the public at large, it still does raise some troubling questions. Effectively, as we've said, part of the, of the defense, part of the reason this case collapsed was that the prosecution was unable to establish that the bus that these three buses belonged to the state of Antigua and Barbuda, that they may instead have been donated for community purposes or even donated to individuals. Mr. Daniel, for example, maintained that he personally re he received the bu a bus personally, and it is also the case that Mr. Ash, as Antigua's ambassador to the United Nations, negotiated the transfer of these buses from the government of. Of, the, of South Korea to Antigua and Barbuda. I think it's fair enough to ask, even if all this is true, is it appropriate for the ambassador of a state to be negotiating the transfer of assets from, a, from another state to specific individuals within his country, especially specific individuals who, in addition to being private individuals, also hold positions as ministers of, of the crown? It is the case that certainly for Mr. Lovell and Mr. Quinn, the evidence seems clear that they put their buses to public use. There's no evidence that they ever took personal possession of these buses, that they ever drove them, that they ever used them for personal personal purposes. But there is a there is an important 
point of principle here that as a minister of the crown, it should be a serious offence that you have accepted material donations from a foreign state who is trying to, who is giving you these these buses or these valuable items in the attempt to win the political support of your country, but yet you're able and allowed to receive them as a private individual. Even if Mr. Lovell and, and Mr. Quinn, as the evidence shows, did not put this to personal use and did not benefit, benefit from it, this still isn't the sort of conduct that should be permitted because it raises, raises the spectre that had they taken it for personal use, that that still would have been legal. And again, even if it is legal in Antigua and Barbuda, it's not right. It should not be legal. Uh, and I, I, I think that, that that is a gap in the legal framework that I hope the people of Antigua and, and Barbuda will close. I do also want to say more broadly, though, perhaps this is, this is for later on, that I don't want to, underest to underplay what we're talking about. These Together, these um, three buses come up to about 700,000 Eastern Caribbean dollars. But it is small potatoes compared to other forms of alleged corruption that have gone on in Antigua and Barbuda and have not been pursued with the sort of zeal that this case has been pursued with it does raise troubling questions about why a case that given the weakness of the law was inevitably fated to be lost in court was pursued with such determined zeal while cases of multi-million where there are cases of accusations of multi-million dollar uh, corruption have not been pursued at all well let me let me put that question to mr stafford byers because mr byers uh, we, we have a political system in antigua and barbuda where um Generally, what happens is that investigations into corrupt acts tend to take place against the opposition. They tend to take place when a new government has come into power uh, and against the persons who were just in power. That tends to happen. You don't often see investigations into corrupt acts into members of a sitting administration. Uh, and so it creates this problem of legitimacy. Persons will constantly have reason to say, well, this is a political witch hunt. This is something motivated by the sitting administration. Uh, they got into power, and then all of a sudden there were investigations into uh, uh, persons who had lost office. Um, how do we solve that problem of credibility in terms of our corruption investigations, Mr. Byers, so that when the well, police say they're investigating corruption, uh, there's, the, the public does not have to feel as if, well, you know, this is something politically motivated? Or how do we ensure it isn't something politically motivated? Well, I, I think that we, we all must have a desire to move from where we are to, to a higher plane. And I think that when justice is being served, it, 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 we, we must not only make us assure ourselves and others that uh, there's no evil in what's going on, but there's no, also no appearance of evil. That is the problem with the current system. And you laid it out very well. So I think one of the ways we should do, we should, I, I, again, I like consensus building when it comes to certain public sector matters. So I think we should have a coming together of the minds to say, look, in order for this to be done properly and that the police not be used as po political hacks, let us set up some kind of intervening body to insulate and keep out the politics. And that could be a body in which the government has some nominations or appointments, the opposition could, the, the professional organizations and the 
civic organization, professional organizations like the Bar Association, civic organizations like the Council of Churches and the Chamber of Commerce, all have input into appointing people into this body that investigates these kind of matters of public corruption. So at least the, 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 process, the legitimacy of the process would not be in jeopardy. I think this is, is, is a good way to start. It's not the only way of doing it, but it's one, that's one of the low hanging fruits that we could use to help bring back some perception of legitimacy to the process. Yeah, if, if I can add to that point, I am completely for the idea of an intervening body. It's actually a suggestion that I've been pondering on for, for quite some time. And I think uh, if we think a little broader than just national uh, frontiers, but look rather to, for example, starting off with an OECS investigative unit where you have trained um, corruption investigators um, a lot of who may ha not have ties to any individual state, who may not have any axe to grind. The problem I have with having government and opposition uh, appointing investigators to certain things in this particular instance is that they will pick their own people. That's inevitably how they operate. The whole idea is that you want to say that there was no political uh, motivation for the investigation to begin with. You want a situation where if there is a report um, made to this particular body, they will meet and simply um, start an investigation. Let me ask, I just want to get your take. Um, to, to what extent um, could we expect this sort of involvement from the uh, Integrity Commission in Antigua and Barbuda? Is that a body that was uh, designed to, to be active in some way in cases like these? Well, um, technically it, it could be because reports could be made uh, to it, but I know Several years uh, ago, I'm trying to remember if I was still a prosecutor at the time, but I think it was probably somewhere in 2018 uh, or 2019, thereabouts, somewhere, somewhere around there. I attended a, a workshop at which a member of the Anti-Corruption Commission w was present, and he spoke about how it was woefully understaffed, mm. under-resourced, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So if you have that in place, I mean, like, really, what role will it solve? Yeah. Just thinking out loud. Um, Mr. Maharaj, that question of um, legitimacy in terms of uh, uh, investigations, because, I, I, for instance, when the United Progressive Party uh, came to power in 2004, uh, a number of uh, preliminary inquiries were launched into alleged uh, misfeasance and corruption uh, that took place prior to 2004. Uh, different persons within the Labour Party were subject to uh, uh, questioning by law enforcement, uh, uh, special investigations, uh, even civil suits over uh, alleged misappropriation or, or, or bad governance. Um, and so it tends to be that there always has this appearance, there always is, rather, this appearance of politically motivated um, investigations and any any new government that comes into power that is alleging that the past government was you know doing wrong is going to uh, press law enforcement to launch some investigations so uh, how, how do we avoid this problem of constantly having corruption investigations which are seen as politically motivated or are in fact politically motivated when they 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 are not on good grounds i think that's that's an important question I think we have to accept that it will always be the case that a new government will accuse the previous government of having been at best incompetent and at worst corrupt. That is the nature of politics. The difference, I think, in Antigua and Barbuda is that new governments have shown a willingness to use the apparatus of state 
to go after their predecessors for alleged incompetence and corruption, even if the cases against them don't really stand up. If there's one, there's, there are positive aspects that came out of this most recent case. And one of them is the fact that, as Mr. Smith mentioned, the prosecution was not conducted by the by Antigua's director of public prosecution, but instead by a prosecutor brought in from Mossera. And I, th I think that demonstrates a recognition of the fact that Antigua and Barbuda is, in the grand scheme of things, a country of relatively modest size. And that means that inevitably, virtually everyone is only a couple of degrees of separation away from anyone else. It makes it fiendishly difficult for, for there to be true independence in politically appointed bodies because Firstly, it's a, it's a modest population, and secondly, the political class is an even smaller group of people. Having some sort of body that is made up of representatives from the rest of the Caribbean, I think would be a phenomenal way of bringing in dispassion and therefore lowering the possibility of conflicts of interest of institutions being used for political retaliation instead of the pursuit of justice. And having it staffed by people, by prosecutors, by jurists, by de by defense attorneys who come from across the Caribbean would maintain it as a Caribbean institution rather than as an institution that enforces, for example, European or quasi-colonial justice on, on the country. Ultimately, the anti-corruption body in Antigua and Barbuda was meant to play the role of an arm's length independent body that dispassionately applies justice to cases of, of real and alleged political corruption, no reasonable person could say that it has met its, it, it, it has fulfilled its obligation and met its mandate. And whether that is because of how the, whether that is because it has, it has been under-resourced or whether that is because it has been subject to political influence, I, I don't know. But I am comfortable in saying this, given that there have been huge allegations, uh, catastrophic allegations of corruption in Antigua and Barbuda that have not been pursued by the by the anti-corruption body. One has to ask very deep questions about whether it is fit for purpose. I would point out that at the same time that, that uh, people were arguing over the fate of a $200,000 bus in a case that was ultimately recently dismissed by the courts, the sitting prime minister of Antigua and Barbuda has, has accused one of his own former ministerial uh, um, colleagues, Asit Michael, and a sitting MP of corruption. He has made that accusation in the, in the legislature, and yet apparently there's no investigation into that. If it's possible for the current setup to result in intense zeal in the prosecution of cases of a few hundred thousand dollars which result in exoneration of the accused while still remaining silent in matters that involve tens of millions of dollars um, and where the innocence or guilt of the of the parties concerned remains unresolved and where the parties concerned are amongst the most powerful people in the country then i think at a minimum we have to conclude that there's something wrong with the anti-corruption architecture in the country
<laughs> and Mr. Stafford Bias, to follow up on that, uh, what is your take on that that issue? Because it is a fact. I mean, we, we, we have had um, Prime Minister Gaston Brown in Parliament uh, recently making a host of accusations against uh, MP Asset Michael and a, a spat between the two and this sort of wrangling that the Labour Party is currently going through to try and uh, uh, exclude Asset Michael with as little fallout as, as possible. Uh, and, and he's made a host of allegations, um, uh, serious allegations, uh, an alleged uh, abuse of, of serious sums of money. Uh, things, of course, which Mr. Michael has denied. Uh, but we, we have heard and seen no police action, no, no, no statements, uh, nothing in terms of, of law enforcement movement on the issue. And, and many of these things, um, he says, would have occurred while Mr. Michael was a sitting minister. And we're just finding out about them in you know, 2020 and 2021. Uh, so what do you make of that, Mr. Byers? It is mind-boggling. It's it's it kind of reminds me of um, a period in the Book of Judges in the Bible where it says every man did what is right in his own eye. Uh, it seems that the, the the privileged class in Antigua and Barbuda, especially the the, the present uh, cabal, they seem to just willy-nilly do things and say things in the open because of a flagrant flagrant disregard for the law and i think disregard for the people uh, and unfortunately the the people in the main stay in their respective uh political um ghettos and and basically defend these type of things but i think that leaders have to understand that they're supposed to be responsible and yes, the law and the legal system should hold them responsible. But if none of that is done, then the, the, the political system, the people who elect people, should be willing to say, yes, I, I support such and such. But given what the very prime minister himself has declared in parliament, uh, some change needs, changes need to be made. And I, I, I am really flabbergasted at, at the statement in and of itself when it which was made, among other statements that were, have been made, that's not the only one. And, and I, I just cannot understand how people could just gloss over them and move on and yet justify 600,000 prosecution, 600,000 EC uh, prosecution of of these buses and again i'm not in any way if something went wrong with the way the buses were used every, all of them should have been checked out but given what the prime minister said and it was several levels he misrepresented what the transaction was about he misrepresented the valuation of the property and all these things amounted to tens of millions as mr maharaj has said and nothing is being done. We need to recalibrate our thinking from the individual right up to the prime minister. If, if I may respond sure, to something sure. Mr. Barnes just said very quickly, I think he raised a, a very critical point for the people of Antigua and Barbuda, and that is that it's easy for us as ordinary people to condemn corruption when it is committed by our political adversaries. It's far more important that we, we condemn it when it's committed by people we see as our political allies. As long as the people of Antigua and Barbuda are prepared to say it's only corruption when, my, when someone I disagree with politically does it, and it's fine, it's the way of doing business when someone I agree with does it, then you will always be caught in this cycle of alternating criminality rather than a cycle of justice. If I may just throw in a little point here. 
given what I said before, I, I'm just trying to see if I can figure a, a little leeway out that the DPP has to consent to the prosecution of corruption. I don't see why the DPP either as his, in his office or in his personal capacity as a, as a resident of the community can't ask the police to engage in an investigation. It's not to say that he will do the investigating himself, but ask for it because no minister of a sitting administration or no, nobody in the same administration is going to enthusiastically run to the police and say, hey, my um, colleague here is guilty <laughs> of corruption or, or may be involved in corruption. Please investigate. It's not going to happen, right? Somebody has to pick up the slack and... The, the, the thing is, I mean, I, I just giggled to myself when I, when I heard you say, uh, all of you speak about the allegations that have been made against a, f a particular former minister. But um, on, in, in reality, I think Jesus will come before anything happens where that is concerned. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, Mr. Smith, I have a question to ask you, though. Yes. Uh, and going back to the examination of Mr. Baldwin Spencer. Yes. Are there any provisions in the procedure in Antigua and Barbuda for the for him to have been declared a hostile witness and be examined as such? Ah, but the question is for us, what is a hostile witness? You become a hostile witness if you give any evidence which is materially contradictory to what you would have told the police. And you didn't have that in this particular situation, if you follow what I'm saying. So okay, yes. that would be the only grounds on which you can cross-examine or impeach your own witness. But okay. at the same time, like I said before, it would have been foreseeable. Because like I said before, you expect Baldwin Spencer to come and say, Oh, well, my ministers, yeah, it was the property of the government and they fraudulently converted. It's not going to happen. So they shot themselves in the foot, basically. They shot themselves in both feet. Matter of fact, you couldn't say, well, they kicked the ball into the goal and they come back out and they kick it back in again. And then came out and they can get back in a third time. Uh, okay, well, closing, closing, closing statements, gentlemen. Uh, we could begin with Mr. Byers uh, very briefly because we do have to move on to the next segment. Well, first, we'd like to see, what I'd like to see is that governments conduct themselves in such a way worthy of the trust that has been placed in them by the people to make sure they do things without any animus and that everything is done in the interest of the people of the country. I also think that whenever people are in opposition, that they should not be victimized by the government and that they should be considered as regular citizens. If something is done wrong, then they should be called into account. But we have to ask government to stay away and really do their utmost to avoid the whole perception of malicious prosecution. Uh, yes, uh, boy, where to start? Um, well, first and foremost, I, I just want to start by dealing with a point that was made earlier in relation to Mr. Daniel and his bus and Mr. Ash. Now, the point made by Mr. Maharaj, I mean, is, is, is well taken with respect to uh, gifts from a government ending up in the private names of individuals. But you see, the problem is Bear in mind that uh, communication was asked for with respect to the buses from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs via diplomatic note um, asking to confirm whether they were gifts of the government of Antigua Barbuda. What did not happen was a follow-up note asking, well, what was the specific purpose of the bus in Antigua and Barbuda? What is this COICA program all about? And was it a proper use of the bus to put it in the 
the, the, the name of Mr. Daniel for his personal use, given that it is something paid for by taxpayers' money? That, those questions were not asked. Well, it was asked. a donation. It was a donation. Yeah, it was a donation. It was a donation. Right, but those questions weren't asked. That is the fundamental um, standard by which that you have to satisfy even before you talk about fraudulent conversion. Without knowing what that is, you're basically speculating as to what the purpose is. But if I may say, I mean, like learning from this, the police need more direction from the direction, director of um, I think the entire relationship between the police and the DPP needs a thorough re-examining. Thank because you it comes very much. Very often, you know, the police doing something that the DPP disagrees with, or the DPP doing something that the police are not willing to follow up on, or, or, or wanting something that the police are not willing to. Yes, I, I, I hear it often in terms of reporting and cases, and, and it always ends up in something not really being successfully very prosecuted. Much. And in addition to that, there needs to be some guide that the police follow with respect to investigating and giving testimony in court. I mean, what didn't come out in court was how the evidence came across. I mean, police officers should not be saying, I don't know if that happened, that may have happened. It, it, it sounds unprofessional. When you have the, the prosecution having that burden of proof, it doesn't sound good uh, before the trial of fact. And the last point I want to make is that we must learn the lesson that there must be some policy put in place with respect to how gifts and other things received from a foreign agency um, come into Antigua and Barbuda. It has to be that, one, they are put into the names of the government of Antigua and Barbuda as soon as they arrive, and then they are put under the appropriate ministry for their supervision, direction, and control. That way, you can avoid allegations that it's only party supporters that have access to the items. Uh, Mr. Maharaj, final words? I think the people of Antigua and Barbuda should pause and take stock of what this episode has revealed about the country, not just about the verdict. Uh, my suggestion would be that first, there should be changes to the laws in the country so that ministers are subject to um, anti-corruption restrictions that are no less stringent than those that are applied to civil servants, the public at large. As I said before, if it's wrong for a, a civil servant to do something or to take a gift, it should be still more wrong for a minister to do so. Secondly, I think there should be an outright prohibition on ministers receiving gifts from foreign states, um, irrespective of what they do with that. E even if they're, even if they claim and even if they believe that they're going to use those foreign gifts, those gifts for the public good, for a minister to receive a gift from a foreign state places that minister under an obligation to that foreign state and deprives him of his independence and opens the door to corruption. And thirdly, I think this is demonstrated yet again that Antigua and Barbuda needs a stronger and far better resourced and much more independent anti-corruption body, one that has the, the willingness and the capacity to investigate and prosecute the a sitting government with no less zeal than it, than it applies to members of the opposition. Uh, with that, we end this segment here. I want to say thank you to Mr. Stafford Byers, attorney at law. He joined us from New York. Uh, Mr. Akash Maharaj, ambassador at large for the Global Organization of Parliamentarians Against Corruption, known as GOPAC. And to Mr. Adlai Smith, a former prosecutor in the office of the DPP, uh, current director of law reform and special legal projects. Thanks to all three of you.